your task is not to seek for love, but merely to seek and find all the barriers within yourself that you have built against it. So these five days that we've all put aside are, are, will be about the exploration of these various flavors of love and parsing out some of the various nuances of these, these aspects of love, the Brahma Viharas. And maybe, just maybe, you may find some ways to loosen some of the conditionings or resistances or constrictions that dampen the full expression of love in you. And that's, that's the spiritual exploration. Another way to perceive of our time together is that with each other's support, um, we're going to be devoted uh, to, the, to this exploration and enhancement of, really, humanity's greatest potential. That's the edge we're playing on here. Um, so these four extraordinary states of heart and mind, these energies that the Buddha taught, um, metta, which I'm going to highlight tonight, um, Loving-kindness is, is one um, translation. Uh, Loving-friendliness is another. You know, and that's es essentially the undiscriminating, undiscriminating friendliness towards all of creation. Okay? And then there's compassion, which is karuna. And the definition I like the best is the quivering of the heart in response to suffering, yours or another's quivering of the heart in response to suffering, your own or the suffering of others. And then there's appreciative, uh, appreciative joy or sympathetic joy, mudita, which is the uh, cultivating the amazing capacity uh, to feel uh, delight, the energy of delight with the happiness and success of others. It's not dependent on ours. It's, so that's, that's a very interesting practice. And then there's equanimity, upekka, which is the balance of mind, you know, balance of the heart and mind, really. And it's a balance that's unperturbed by the winds of existence. You know, sometimes you may gain, sometimes you may lose. Sometimes you'll be... Um, honored, sometimes you'll be dishonored. Sometimes there'll be pleasure, sometimes there'll be pain. You know? But this balance is not cold. It's not indifferent. You know? Um, and it responds to the well-being of others. So it's not a, it's, it's not a cool indifference. So these are the four, and uh, Nyanaponika Tara, <clears throat> the great scholar monk, he gives a very succinct description of the power of these four emotions, these beautiful emotions. He says this, four sublime states of mind 
have been taught by the Buddha. <clears throat> in Pali, the language of the Buddha, the language of the Buddhist scriptures, these four are known under the name of Brahma Vihara. This term may be rendered by excellent, lofty, or sublime states of mind, or alternatively, by Brahma-like, God-like, or divine abodes. These four attitudes are said to be excellent or sublime because they are the right or ideal way of conduct toward living beings. They provide, in fact, the answer to all situations arising from social contact. They are the great removers of tension, the great peacemakers in social conflict, and the great healers of wounds suffered in the struggle of existence. They level social barriers, build harmonious communities, awaken slumbering magnanimity, awaken slumbering magnanimity long forgotten, revive joy and hope long abandoned, and promote human unity against the forces of egotism. I mean, what makes the Brahma Vihara so exceptional, so special? In, in spiritual development is that they are, each of them are fundamentally incompatible with a hating state of mind, with aversion, with all the aversions. They're just these, the energies of these uh, four beautiful emotions that we are going to be exploring and playing with in these few days are incompatible with a mind of hate. In in uh, Buddhist cosmology, uh, uh, I mean, it's called Brahma Vihara, and so in Buddhist cosmology, there's these thirty one planes of existence, and when you die, you're shot through to one of these thirty one planes. Uh, there's heaven realms, and there's a particular god of the heaven realms called Brahma. Now the earth plane happens to be special in its own sense because it's both heaven and hell, as we've noticed. But it's an opportunity, according to the Buddhist philosophy, for us really uh, to be able to work. We get lots of suffering. We get a fair amount of joy. It's a great place to work. The heaven realms are a little different. Everything is kind of smoothed out. Nothing really bad happens, except there is a lifetime. It's a longer one. Everything's pleasant, but you do get old and sick and die even there. But we have more opportunities to work and cultivate and learn from a human incarnation. But anyway, I don't want to digress too much. Um, the, uh, the god, Brahma, is, is pretty special. Um, he's a little bit unique from most of the gods that we hear about. And this is, again, from uh, Nyanaponika Terra, the monk. He says, in contrast to many other conceptions of deities, east and west, who by their own devotees are said to show anger, wrath, jealousy, and righteous indignation, Brahma is free from hate. And one who assiduously develops these four sublime states by conduct and meditation is said to become an equal of Brahma. If they become the dominant influence in their mind, they will be reborn in congenial worlds, the realms of Brahma. 
Therefore, these states of mind are called godlike, Brahma-like. So that's Brahma. That's where that that kind of comes from. And the word vihara means abode. Okay, with the trajectory of your practice, um, that 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 these mind states, these four beautiful uh, mind states, become more and more of your home as you as you as you kind of develop yourself. It's it's your default position to be lovingly friendly, to have compassion, to appreciate the success and happiness of others and in, 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 in join in that, and to have balance as you're dealing with all the stuff of life. Um, okay. So as practice in these uh, continues, as the neural pathways are starting to get um, some kind of staying power with them, the effect is tremendous, you know, and it's it, it, when when they use the divine abodes, making that our home, sinking our deeps, our, our roots deeper and deeper in there is the trajectory of practice. It's not like going to a vacation spot where you're there for a little while and then you forget about it when you're not there. The idea being that the energies of these Brahma Viharas are kind of uh, almost in the palate all the time, you know, or most of the time. Okay, so we we saturate ourselves with these. These these states are also known as the boundless states. Okay, that's because when you when you develop them into their maturity and develop some intimacy with them. They're not narrow or limited in any way. This is challenging. You know, they're not limited to the range of beings that you think are worthy of your friendliness or your compassion. They're, it's a boundless quality. Okay. Um, but what that means is when a mind gets more fully ripened into the Brahma Viharas, that the mind's not going to harbor any hatred or prejudice. That's a big deal. And no prejudice towards any racial or ethnic group, towards any sexual orientation or gender, toward any religion, toward any class, toward any political affiliation, you know, or disability, you know. But in the energies of each of these four, you can feel the potential for humanity. You know, when I look at spiritual practices or contemplative practices, it's like we're, we're pushing the envelope of evolution. We really are. It's like, how do we get out of our egocentric, me and my family, my tribe kind of thing, and and open. There's too many of us not to. If we don't, we kind of know what's going to happen. So it's practices like these, and there are a lot of great contemplative practices that kind of push that envelope. So we can't undersell these qualities or understate them. 
Because if they don't ripen a little more uh, in our species, you know, it's hard to imagine much of a future. So, of course, they're a tall order. When you think about having friendly feelings, loving friendliness without bounds, how quick do we run up against individuals or groups? They were there, I can't do that. You know? Well, that's the challenge. We take baby steps, baby steps, you know? One moment at a time. You know, try not to be discouraged. It's kind of a multi-pronged uh, approach. You know, first, first you got to summon up your energy, your curiosity, kind of bring that to the table. And then you systematically reflect on these. Well, what is this loving friendliness? Or what, how is it different than compassion? You know, how, how does this work inside me? You know, an appreciative joy and, and equanimity, you know? All these qualities are in all of you, you know. And as you repeatedly reflect on them, um, there's a kind of framework understanding that begins to happen. And, um, you know, the, 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 an understanding of them, kind of e- even intellectually, and the importance of them. And out of that continual reflection, there can be, and... and and does happen in many people a kind of a robust aspiration to see them developed fully, both in ourselves and and in everyone. So, but really to internalize, you know, there's that kind of framework understanding, and then there's the practice where we're building those neural pathways. If you want to have loving friendliness as your default or compassion as your default, we've got to work it into our neural pathways. We know that now. Research tells us that. So there are these practices, you know. And so these few days, you will be offering simple phrases, you know. May I be filled with loving friendliness. May I be well. May I be peaceful and at ease. You know, may I be happy. May I come to know the, 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 the true causes of happiness or whatever you construct. It's a very personal practice, you know. Um, but it's practice. And we're re-engineering our nervous system and our brains. It's interesting that the, the, the Brahma Viharas are... are they're both a practice, and they're the fruits of practice, you know. They're not some adjunct to mindfulness practice or awareness practice, you know. They're, they're an absolutely necessary complement to awakening. In fact, I, I, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that you can't truly be present with your experience unless your heart and mind is familiar with these beautiful emotions. Love, compassion, joy, equanimity. And remember, these energies are our counter to 
all the aversive energies, fear, anger, hatred, guilt, shame, boredom, aversive energies. Okay. I mean, that, that being said, it's also, you know, pretty easy for aversion to slip into our into our mindfulness practice, and we don't even don't even know it. In a way, I can remember um, uh, in the beginning of my practice, really taking up the mindfulness business and um, getting into an interaction with a significant other or family member or, you know, something that's charged and um, resting in the mindfulness of the situation, or that's what I thought that I was doing. You know, we're in this kind of heavy situation, and, uh, oh, in my mind, it's just phenomena rolling on and on. Sounds are known, you know. Sights are known. Um, you know, touch is known, you know, but yeah, that's, there's kind of an absolute truth to that. But what was missing was the relational content. You know, it wasn't the, it wasn't the whole picture. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of true, but it's, uh, the other person was feeling that the relational field was dead or mostly missing. Or they're feeling pushed away or, or, or shut out. You know, people can feel what's going on in our internal situation in a relational field. You know. So that's, and, and yes, on some level, that's a form of non-attachment. Yes, all those things were happening. It was phenomenal. It was changing. All of that. But it wasn't appropriate for the relational situation. It was more of a spiritual bypass, using the practice to bypass, you know. True non-attachment or skillful non-attachment is to see and feel everything, take in everything, not using some pale form of mindfulness to avoid being touched by life, you know. That's aversion and fear, you know. The uh, the eleventh uh, century Japanese poet Izuzu uh, said it like this: "The moon at dawn, solitary meets sky. I knew myself completely. No part left out. The moon at dawn, solitary meets sky. I knew myself completely. No part left out." These Brahma Viharas can be kind of an indicator or a signpost. You know, uh, in, in, when you're doing your awareness practice, your mindfulness practice, sometimes you get in the doldrums. It's just, um, it, it's kind of a rut. You're, you're, you're kind of mindful, but it's not enlivened. It's not healing, but there is some mindfulness there. When you can notice you've hit the doldrums, it can be helpful to just say, well, you know, what's, uh, you know, something's off. What's going on with my heart? You know, is there activation or complete inactivation of these beautiful emotions? You know? 
what in what way is love not freely flowing through my heart, mind, and body? That's a kind of indicator where some TLC might be necessary, you know, some attention paid. So each day of the retreat, we're going to highlight one of these, one of these four. And tonight I'm going to say a little, just a little bit about um, metta, often translated as loving kindness. But uh, a revered teacher of mine, Bhante Gunaratana, who Shell knows, um, some of you may have studied with, it, he's it always conjoling us American teachers. Don't, it's not loving kindness. You're going to get that all confused with compassion. That's kindness. Loving friendliness, he keeps saying. Loving friendliness. But most of us have been conditioned uh, into calling it loving kindness. And then we get to compassion, which is also kindness, where I could see his point. So I generally try to use it as loving friendliness, but forgive me if I slide back and forth. So this metta, this loving friendliness, it's without any desire to possess. I mean, it's more like open hands. If it's like this, that's not loving friendliness. Okay. And as I alluded to, it's without selecting and excluding. That in practice, you come to understand that any exclusion, and we can't help it, you know, but any exclusion, any exclusion kind of fuels the strengthening of the opposite of love, dislike, various aversions, hatred even, you know. So metta embraces all beings. Everything that walks, crawls, swims, flies, and is rooted in the ground, all of it. And that all includes even those that are aren't pleasing to you or useful to you, okay? And whether you consider a particular being moral or immoral, good or evil, uh, metta embraces all of them. And of course, it's easier to, to embrace metta with someone who you feel is honorable in their speech and actions, etc. That's That's easy. It's a, a spontaneous exchange of friendliness. And then there are, are those who have seemingly lost their personal integrity and they're creating harm. You know, what about them? They too get included because they probably need it more than anybody else. You know. And I think, uh, as an aside, you know, we do these practices, but whether they actually affect people out there, I'm not sure. Some people say, oh, yeah, and you pray over or chant over your mung bean sprouts, they're going to grow better than if you don't. You know, there's all this kind of stuff, and anecdotal, might be true. But the one thing I am sure of is that practicing these practices, it, it affects moi. You know, I'm creating those pathways and my my 
touch point is more likely going to be one of friendliness and compassion as I practice more deeply. You know, so um, so we do include, we try to include those who we might feel are immoral and are doing harm, you know. You know, in many of them, that kind of fragile seed of goodness never got a chance to to grow or it was deeply buried and it never had the conditions uh, to flower. Oftentimes when I'm really stuck on particular people in power or political people, if I take some time and read into their background and try to figure out, well, why are they acting like that? Oftentimes there is kind of empathy and understanding that allows more of a, a, a flow of care toward even them, you know, through understanding, you know. So, you know, and Meta is embracing all beings because we're recognizing we're all fellow travelers. You know, and through this round of existence that we're in, short or long, whatever it may be, and that we all succumb to the those energies that the Buddha calls the three poisons at times in our lives, and we can list them if we wanted to. The times we've been greedy, times we've been filled with aversion, hatred, ill will, times we've been deluded, you know, ignorant. You know, we're we're in this together. You know, we're on this train, and it's really a short ride. And meta is is an energy that's steady in its understanding. It doesn't waver when it's when it's cultivated well. And it's completely unconcerned with any response. That's a key factor. You can give meta. And can you give it without expecting any response? It's that clean and open when we cultivate it some. It's not a business love, so to speak, or some kind of gangster love. You do something for me, I do something for you. It's not like that. I heard this somewhere. I don't don't have the source, but um, Metta does prime the pump for these other beautiful emotions. And it's out of the soil of metta grows the beautiful bloom of compassion to be watered by the tears of joy under the cool shade of equanimity. Out of the soil of metta grows the beautiful bloom of compassion to be watered by the tears of joy under the cool shade of equanimity. I want to read you a little story. This is uh, was written by Pablo Neruda, um, poet, writer, social activist. Um, and he said, he's talking about his childhood. One time, investigating in the backyard of our house in, in Temuco, the tiny objects in... One time, investigating in the backyard of our house in Temuco, the tiny objects 
and minuscule beings of my world, I came upon a hole in one of the boards of the fence. I looked through the hole and saw a landscape like that behind our house, uncared for and wild. I moved back a few steps because I sensed vaguely that something was about to happen. All of a sudden, a hand appeared, a tiny hand of a boy about my own age. By the time I came close again, the hand was gone, and in its place, there was a marvelous white toy sheep. The sheep's wool was faded. Its wheels had escaped. All of this only made it more authentic. I had never seen such a wonderful sheep. I looked back through the hole, but the boy had disappeared. I went into the house and brought out a treasure of my own, a pine cone opened, full of odor and resin, which I adored. I set it down in the same spot and went off with the sheep. I never saw either the hand or the boy again, and I have never again seen a sheep like that either. The toy I lost finally in a fire. But even now, in 1954, almost 50 years old, whenever I pass a toy shop, I look furtively into the window, but it's no use. They don't make sheep like that anymore. I've been a lucky man to feel the intimacy of brothers is a marvelous thing in life. To feel the love of people whom we love is a fire that feeds our, our life. But to feel the affection that comes from those whom we do not know, from those unknown to us, who are watching over our sleep and solitude, over our dangers and our weaknesses, that is something still greater and more beautiful because it widens out the boundaries of our being and unites all living things. That little exchange brought home to me for the first time a precious idea that all of humanity is somehow together. That, exper that experience came to me again much later. This time it stood out strikingly against a background of trouble and persecution. It won't surprise you then that I attempted to give something resiny, earth-like, and fragrant in exchange for human brotherhood. Just as I once left the pine cone by the fence, I have since left my words on the door of so many people who were unknown to me, people in prison or hunted or alone. That is the greatest lesson I learned in my childhood, in the backyard of a lonely house. Maybe it was nothing but a game two boys played who didn't know each other and wanted to pass to the other some good things of life. Yet maybe this small and mysterious exchange of gifts rem remained inside me also, deep and indestructible, giving my poetry light. So meta, it's a way of seeing the world. And Pablo and his little friend, you know, seeing the world through the, the eyes of friendliness and kindness. That's a whole different lens than seeing the world through aversion. And for some of us, and for me, it's my firsthand experience, I didn't take to these practices at first. Um, it was kind of a steeper climb getting some traction. In my childhood, I think the kind of 
economic and subculture experience that I grew up with in New Jersey um, had a lot of distrust in it and fear in it and scarcity woven into it. Also from New Jersey, it had a kind of jaded, sarcastic quality that I'm still working with. You know, but to be fair, there's a lot of strong elements of love and compassion also woven in. But the overall experience was was a little rough cut, so it took me a little a little more time to to get settled into these practices. But they've been a godsend, really. It's really opened uh, elements in myself I didn't uh, didn't know existed. So in, in speaking of any of the Brahmaviharas, it's always good to um, mention the near enemy. Near, en- en- near enemy is an energy that kind of looks like the same energy, uh, but it's masquerading. It's something else. So the near enemy of love or metta or loving friendliness is attachment, unhealthy attachment. I'm not talking about the the healthy attachment that a child needs from its parents. Um, you know, I'm not talking about that at all. That is essential to health. You know, but attachment as an unskillful attachment or the near enemy. You know, it's like I will love this person because I need them, or I'll love you if you love me back. As I mentioned before, it has a kind of business feeling to it, an exclusivity. I'll love you, but only if you be the way that I want you to be. It's rigid. kind of. We can feel the rigidity in, in that kind of countenance of the relational field. So when there's an unhealthy attachment like that, there's clinging. And there's fear. Whereas metta, it allows and it honors and it appreciates. It's more of this open, 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 you know. Whereas attachment, unhealthy attachment, really grasps, demands, it needs, it aims to possess. And so if you examine your types of attachment with compassion for yourself because none of us are perfect at this, okay? You can see how it may have been conditioned or constricted in some way, you know, and, and has some exclusivity to it. But in the sense of the Buddha, the Buddha's idea of love is this universal, you know, non-discriminating. It's a feeling of caring and friendliness. So, I mean, we're all in the process of this, and no one's going to be perfect, and all the complexities, conditionings, and wounds of our upbringing are in play here. All the protective impulses that we have. And if you believe in past lifetimes, well, then there's all of that. You know, it's it's huge. So give yourself lots of slack 
lots of forgiving compassion, you know, when you feel you've come up short in some way. You know, you're going to be paying attention to these various beautiful energies. And so that will also highlight some of the opposite ones that will pop. It's like, ooh, there we go again, you know. It's okay. So we can swing from a very constricted, aversive space to one that's loving and friendly in a breath. And I'm going to tell a story about my father because he demonstrated this actually a lot. But this is just one, one story. He suffered mightily from PTSD in World War II. I didn't know him. I was born after the war. But uh, he was in combat for over 600 straight days. And so when he came back, people and relatives would say, oh, you should have known him when? You know, as I was growing up, well, I didn't know him when. I just knew this very short-tempered, volatile uh, guy, you know. But I remember one time it was, I was, I, I think, in, in writing this out and thinking this through, I think I was a junior in high school. We lived in a little row house. We were on the end row house. And there was a little porch, a uh, screened-in porch. It was really small, and there was a table. And I would do my homework there, and it was probably late May or June, it was warm. And the people, there was paper-thin walls. And the family that lived right next to us, the the eldest male happened to be the president of the North, North Jersey Aliens Motorcycle Club. He was in and out of prison a lot. That was a possible career path for me. I was invited, but I, somehow I didn't pick it up. Um, but they, and one particular evening, they had the meeting there, and there was like 15 or 20 motorcycles, choppers they were called at the time, and the people and, and were working on them, and they were drinking beer and this and that, and they were noisy, and just, they were just having a great time, and the bikes and parts were all kind of on our little property and out there, and then my father saw one of them or a couple of them urinating in our yard. And he lost it. All five foot seven, 140 pounds of him. Goes out that door. And he's cursing from the top step out into the... These are big, big guys. And he's going right for him. And I'm like, I'm like going into shock. So I move over to the door. And I grab a baseball bat. And I'm standing there with a bat on the floor. And I'm thinking... I don't want to die for this guy. He's crazy, you know, and he's my father. So I'm like, uh. and so he disappears in this, this, this crowd of these guys come around him and he's swearing a blue streak at him. And as fate would have it, um, the, the president of the club back then known as Jersey Jack, that was his famous name, jumps into the middle of it. And he apologizes to my father and kind of, you know, for the disrespect and that they'll never do it again. And, you know, and he got everybody to kind of nod. Right, right, fellas. Yeah, 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 yeah. So then I'm just completely relieved. I go sit down. I'm shaking, but I'm relieved. 
my father doesn't say anything to me. He just goes in and he kind of storms in and he goes down in the, in our little basement and I'm hearing, he's banging around with all this stuff. And then I hear him huffing and puffing and he's dragging two big toolboxes up the stairs. He goes outside and he starts sharing his tools and helping these guys with their motorcycles. And I'm like, how did he do that? How did he go from that kind of rage, constricted hatred, to something opened in his heart? And there it was. They had this really beautiful, friendly exchange. So you just don't know, you know? You know, so no matter what kind of damage you've suffered, the seed of love that's in there and friendliness, it doesn't die. It may be covered over and dormant, but it really can't be completely extinguished. I know that I've been, been teaching at this prison forever now, 15 years or whatever it is. I know that from the women in the prison that are locked in cages. Great hearts. Great capacity. It hasn't been extinguished. You know, it can't be. So really, this friendliness that we're going to be cultivating in our neural pathways is the is the soil in which compassion and joy and real balance in life can grow out of. And it's, it's, it's not a groovy kind of rom- romanticism, you know. And it's not the Christian concept of uh, agopic love, which is more about charity for the less fortunate. It's really, metta is really more subtle and profound than any romantic love or any kind of charity. It's a, it's a boundless friendliness that begins to bridge the felt separation between individuals or our environment or anything in our creation. And when that distinction begins to erode, me, you, that's metta beginning to get traction. And that's the beginning of powerful compassion, joy, and awakening. Rilke said, we are in this world forever taking leave. We are in this world forever taking leave. You know, we're all humans. Everything is changing. We've got the survival juices of our ancestors flowing through us, through our nervous system. And usually those survival energies put the emphasis on us or a close circle of people. You know, with the others being a distant second. These practices erode that separation. Metta is an act of endless forgiveness in a way. You could also say that for ourselves and others. 
It's a tender energy that we're cultivating to become a habit. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. summed it up like this. He said, look, I've decided to stick with love. Hate is too great a burden to bear. I've decided to stick with love because hate is too great a burden to bear. It'll eat you up. I'm going to end with an adapted version of the Metta Sutta by Catriona Reed. And uh, and this, the historical version of the Metta Sutta comes out of the Sutta Nipata, which is one of the earliest, believed to be by scholars, one of the earliest teachings of the Buddha. Um, if you want to live with truth and integrity, if you hunger for joy and freedom, then live simply. Be impeccable in everything you do, in every word, thought, and deed. Be receptive, gentle, and unassuming. Avoid irrelevant obligations and extraneous distractions. Learn to be content with less, modest in what you consume. Simplify your tastes and tread lightly. Be gracious and appropriate, self-sufficient. Find ways to create balance in your relationships, especially with those people you love the most. Respect the needs of others. Avoid antagonizing them unnecessarily. May all beings be happy and peaceful. May their hearts be full. All living beings, strong ones and weak, large or small, seen or unseen, those nearby or far away, those already born and those yet to be born, beings you can only imagine as well as those that are beyond imagination, wherever they are, whatever they are, may they all, may all beings be joyous and happy. Let no one deceive another. Let no one despise another. Let no one out of resentment or anger wish harm to another. Just as a mother would give her life to protect an only child, so cultivate that same boundless open heart towards all of life. Let your thoughts of unconditional love and kind-heartedness permeate the cosmos, extending in all directions without obstruction, free from preconceptions or fear. Whatever you happen to be doing, whether you are seated, standing, walking, or lying down, so long as you draw breath, find ways to cultivate this quality of loving kindness, this tender quality of mind, which of all qualities is said to most accurately reflect the truth of who you are. Let go of any idea that you are separate from the web of living beings. Let your life be informed by the understanding that all things are interconnected. Find ways to relinquish what you have used as substitutes for love and accept in their place the gift and infinite pleasure of boundless love. Wake up to all that surrounds you. Wake up to your life and be free. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.